Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. So here's what I want to explain to you, okay? We can deduce from other areas that it's not a good idea to jump in front of a bus based on what God has to say about what He created us for and for life. So when we're talking about this topic today, the sanctity of life, I'll be real, there's no explicit statement on abortion that says, you know, thou shalt not go commit abortion or have an abortion or support an abortion or believe in abortion, okay? But um, it's not the 11th commandment anyway, and personally I always thought that was like uh, the 11th commandment was every 12th moon go buy your wife a new purse or something like that. (laughs) No, not shoes. That's not in there. (laughs) Um, But there's no direct statement about when life begins either. Is it conception? Is it implantation? Is it when we take our first breath? Is it when the heart starts beating? When does life begin? So hopefully we can look at what science says and we can deduce from some of the other scriptures and we can kind of figure out when life starts. So let's start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This topic of conversation in the culture today, there's a lot of challenges to this statement that God made man and God made woman. Okay? The culture challenges the word of God. The culture challenges the biblical truth. The culture is really challenging the creator that he didn't know what he was doing when he made people in his image and in his likeness. Okay, this is the foundation for the conversation. Secondly, let's go to Exodus 21. I'm going to read a a series of scriptures to you foundationally. Now, in the Old Covenant, the Old Old Testament law, this is part of the civil law, and uh, it says this. Now, suppose two men are fighting, and in the process, they accidentally strike a pregnant woman. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that would happen, but okay. Uh, So she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but if there's further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, and a bruise for a bruise. In other words, in the Old Covenant, life in the womb was protected. Under Jewish law, in the Old Testament, Life in the womb was protected. If you damaged the baby in the mother's womb, you would pay the same penalty that you would pay if you killed the baby. You would, it would cost you your life. Your life would be forfeit. That was the old covenant law that we lived in, or that they lived in then. In Job 33, for the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty lives, gives, gives me life. And... This is an interesting one because it's God's breath that gives us life. See, we've talked about many times, you are mind, body, spirit. You're you're a threefold being. And I'm going to leave theology and science, and I'm going to go over here and make a comment. Can I do that? Got the mic, I guess I can. 
Okay, I'm leaving theology and science, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud. But I believe that, you know, there's lots of debate about cloning and all these things, but ethics, those kind of things. I'm not even going to get into that, but here's, here's a thought for you. We might be able to create the substance of humans, but I believe only God can breathe the Spirit into existence. So I don't debate with people until humans figure out how to breathe spirits into existence. Um, it's not much of a debate as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we read in Psalms 139 that we were knit in our mother's womb. In Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. In John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, God created everything through him, being Jesus, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created in his life, brought light to everyone. A little bit later in the book of Acts, chapter 17, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no need. He himself gives what? Life and to everything and he satisfies every need. Now, I'm reading these verses because we deduce from these verses where life begins, but let's, let's read one more that I find is kind of like the final stake or the nail in the conversation. A few days later, in Luke 1.39, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea. Now, this is Mary who's pregnant with the baby Jesus. She just had a conversation with the angel Gabriel, and he said, you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to a child. And she's going to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who also had a miraculous pregnancy. Because they were a little bit older, kind of beyond the days of childbearing. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth, and at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. Now, you guys would know that child is John the Baptist. John the Baptist in the womb, when Mary came with Jesus in her womb... When Mary walked in, John got so excited that Jesus was there, he leaped inside of her womb. And all you mothers love it when your children do that while you're carrying them. <laughs> My kids had this thing, man. They'd be like, send down some Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> but how do you know your kids are out to get you? So day one, I went out and got my wife some Reese's peanut butter cups. Day two, I went out and got my wife some Reese's peanut butter cups. Day three, I thought, I'm going to go buy a box of Reese's peanut butter cups because I'm tired of going out every day. And then they changed and said, send down pickles. We don't want those anymore. So my wife ate one Reese's peanut butter cup on day three, and I ate 47. Wow. Not all in one day. I got a courtesy belly. She lost hers after she gave birth. I'm not sure what happened. Okay. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do as he said. So these are early stages, right? They're still in the womb, but they're still responding to each other. They're still responding to the word of the Lord. They're responding to stimulus. This gives me some idea that this life begins 
And, and hopefully I'm going to be able to communicate this to you, but conception is the point when science says that life begins. So if you are an embryologist or if you are a microbiologist, you will, um, through all of the research, determine and conclude that life begins when, uh, okay, so when egg meets sperm. One study said within 10 seconds, can everyone say 10 seconds? Of the two uh, gametes, which is the sperm and the egg coming together, okay, and it forms, it's called a, a zygote, I think that's how you say it, zygote. Uh, immediately, within 10 seconds, there's processing and change within that new zygote that starts building up a resistance so no other sperm can come in and enter at that point. There's a process of maturation that begins right in that moment because life has begun and that the set of cells begins to change. Now, zygote is from the Greek joined or yoked, uh, to join or to yoke. Um, it's the fertilization event between the two gametes. The genome is a combination of the DNA in each gamete, and it contains all of the genetic information necessary to form a new individual at conception. Right there at the beginning, you have a unique individual human being. All things necessary for life to exist at that point um, are present. There's hundreds of research papers that prove this now. Um, life begins scientifically at conception and a new individual with their own DNA begins the process of development that leads to maturity. There's growth, reproduction, metabolism, and response to stimuli. They're all present in the newly formed zygote. Now here's the thing about maturity. From conception to the point of maturity, there's a process that you enter into and you start going through. Now, some of you, while you're physically mature, emotionally, you haven't quite got there yet. Ouch. And there's some of you that spiritually, you've been in the church a long time, but you haven't gone into the maturation process. You're not even reading your Bible, some of you told me. That's like trying to grow into adulthood without eating food. I'll go back to my notes. It's safer. <laughs> so I just want to add, at conception, God breathes life. He gives his breath, and you have a new spirit created. You have a new individual human, okay? Now, I'm just going to throw a few websites out. I didn't get a chance to do this earlier. There's many of them. There's many resources available to you, but if you want to read some of this research, uh, Project Rachel, which is uh, hopeafterabortion.com, they have some of the peer review studies, and specifically on the adverse effects of abortion on women. They have justthefacts.com or justfactsdaily.com or two other sites that kind of just focus on the research portion of it. They try to leave political things and religious views out of it, um, if you just want that. But I will say this, there's no question in the research that these things can adversely affect a woman's mental health. And there's one more thing I want to talk about before I turn it over to our special guest today. Uh, culturally, we appeal to human rights. I, I hear uh, women often say, well, it's my moral right, okay? But how many know if you want to have an honest conversation with people and they want to have an honest truth conversation, then we need to have an honest conversation. Um, Ravi explains it this way. 
If a plane crashes and 70 people die and 10 people live, I think that's the exact illustration he lives. We call that an act of God, and people get upset with God because he made a decision. (laughs) He allowed it to happen. But if it's within God's context to make a decision, he made a moral decision for whatever purpose. Who are we to judge him for his moral decision? But do you see where the conundrum comes in? We judge him, but we're not willing to put ourselves in the same scrutiny. I'm going to leave that one right there. Anyway, I want you to understand something. Jesus came for forgiveness, for freedom, and for hope so that we can be restored to wholeness, mind, body, and spirit, and move forward. We leave the guilt and shame of our past at the cross, we bury it in baptism, and by becoming a child of God, we start operating as an image bearer, a child of the Most High God, made in the image of God. That said, I would like to welcome to our stage Ruth Coghill, who's here to share with us today. And they're going to bless your life, her and uh, Dr. Libby. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor RJ, for allowing us some time this morning to share with you a brand new book, Unborn, Untold, True Stories of Abortion and God's Healing Grace. This story is a miracle in itself because it tells a little bit about my story. It tells lots of other stories, but it also tells his story because we focused on Psalm 139, that he created us in our mother's wombs. He was there when it all transpired at conception, but he's also part of our ongoing days. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. So while we'll be looking at some stories this morning of abortion, we'll also be looking at how God, in his greatness of creation and power and omnipotence, can also recreate that which has been destroyed or taken from us. And when we begin to to take the pen out of his hand as he writes our stories, we suffer greatly. But he has a great way of keeping hold of it, really. And as we begin to allow him to give us his life, his resurrection power, our lives can be recreated even after an abortion. And so God is the author of all of our stories, my story, your story, and all of the stories that are in this book. Why did I have this interest and this call to write this book? It really came to be in a great way on January 8th of this year. And we were introduced that day to our 13th grandchild. Two are already in heaven because of miscarriage. But this was very unique. Every one of our grandchildren, every one of our children has been very special. But when we stood in Groves Hospital in Fergus and held our newest one, I looked at his dad and I looked down 
at our new grandson, Odin Alexander, and I realized that we were experiencing a blessing. Oh, every life is a blessing. But this was a different kind of blessing. It was the blessing of generation, the generations that follow those that choose life. What do you mean? The father in the story, AJ, Alexander Coghill, our fourth child, came much later than we had planned. We have our plans, but God has his plan. And after we had three children and it didn't seem like that fourth one that we really wanted was going to come along, we gave up that idea. So when I found and discovered I was pregnant not in menopause, that was the first thought. We discovered that instead that we were going to have our fourth child. 17 years almost between the first and the last. And more generational blessing was on this stage this morning, by the way. And I can't help but say thank you, God, for his blessing in the generations of our families. Yours, too. He is a God of generations, as Pastor RJ said this morning. So because of my age and some concerns, we were sent from Windsor, where we lived then, to London, Ontario. And in this beautiful hospital with very professional doctors that we felt very safe with to go and find out where we should be when this child was born so that we would be in the right place should there be any problem that were suspected problems. That suspected problems. But when we went and sat down, it was very different. I had the tests that were recommended, and then we sat down with the counselor doctor. And as he began to speak, he made it very clear that we did not have to continue that pregnancy. We were offered an abortion. I remember uh, almost wanting to put my hands over my ears because it was not a convenient time. And I was afraid. Could I do this again? We'd already given baby furniture away twice. And we were going to start all over again. Could we do it at this point in our lives? There were all those fears. And then he is saying, we can make that choice. So on that day in January of this year, January 8th, my mind flipped back to that appointment. And when we went home those years ago, three decades over, I started to think about what in the world is wrong? Why was I offered an abortion? And then I began to think, could I have made the right decision if I didn't have a loving husband that was going to support this child? What if I were like Felicia, whose story is in the book? And I was on drugs and alcohol, had no place to live. I was on the street, living in cars when they were available. How would I be able to cope with a decision? You know, uh, in case you men didn't know it, uh, when we're in pregnancy or in menopause, we're extra hormonally 
challenged and emotionally challenged. And we should never make life-changing decisions during that time. But I began to think about all of those things. So on January 8th, it all came back. It happened between Windsor and London, the first places that we started the book tour. I went home from the hospital in January and I knew God wanted me to do something and, and it was election year and I felt like he wanted me to do something right away and I was already writing my fourth book in the Bible study series and I would put that off already for a couple of years and I knew I had to stop and do this book and I'd wake in early in the morning and I said, Lord, how can I write a book on abortion? And do you know what I heard? Watch me. Watch what I'm going to do. Because if you've got shattered dreams because of an abortion or anything else, God's saying, watch me. Because our book is about the greatness and the awesomeness of God in the darkest places of life. So I said, Lord, I don't know. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I've heard a couple of women come to me in the foyer of, of the church and tell me that they are depressed and they're on antidepressants and they don't want anybody to know. They whisper in my ear. I also heard about abortion in my ear. Then I was asked out for coffee and women shared that they were sitting in my pe the pews at my church and they'd had an abortion, but nobody knew. And my heart was so stirred over the years, but really I didn't have contact with most of them. And I wasn't sure how... I could then tell their stories, but there was one story. It was Rebecca. She was in my Bible study class when I was teaching inductively, and, and I loved Rebecca so much. And, and um, she was in her 70s at the time, and she came to my house because she had something she wanted to share very personally. And as she sobbed and wept, she began to share how she'd had two abortions. She was engaged to be married, and they loved each other very much. Rebecca did not want the babies. But her fiancé did, and she aborted both those babies. After the second abortion, their engagement broke up, and she never saw him again. And she's sobbing, and she's telling me the story, and, and I, she said, please tell my story. Tell any woman that's starting to think about it not to do it. And then she said many years later, she began to realize that not only had she sinned by, by grieving the Lord in shedding the innocent blood, but she'd also sinned against her fiancé and never saw him again. And she wanted to ask forgiveness. She said, will you tell me my story? And I said, Rebecca, it's your story. You need to tell it. She said, I can't tell that story. I've got kids and grandkids and nobody knows. It's 50 years ago and every day. I think about those two babies I aborted. I tucked that story away, probably it would be 10 or 12 years ago, it was in my file. And I got that file out in January and I thought maybe it's time to tell her story. I went to church the following Sunday morning and, and Jane was standing there. She was a new friend because we're in a relatively new area. Jane was standing there and she said, oh, I noticed that you have a new grandson. And I said, yes. And began to tell her and I said Jane do you know that we were offered to abort that son she looked at me and her eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger she said Ruth I haven't told anybody yet 
but I will at some point. She had just found out in Australia two years before that her parents, who were in their 90s when she went to visit them in 2017, that they had aborted her baby brother. I said, Jane, would you tell your story? And the neat thing, she said, oh, I'd love to tell my story. I have no idea how to do it. And I said, well, I'm not sure how we're going to do this book either. But I had my first story from a person right in my neighborhood. Jane's story was a miraculous story because she went to Australia because her parents were aging and, and dying and there'd never been a good relationship between mom and daughter. And, and Jane was trying to, to bring them to Jesus. And her mother said, don't talk about Jesus to me. But as the days went on and her mom was weaker and weaker, Jane continued to share the love of Jesus. No matter what you've done, mom, God will forgive you. And in her story, she writes the gospel as she shared it to her mom. And her mom accepted Jesus Christ. And four days later, she died. The father denied the story at first, and then her dad went on to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior through Jane. And Jane's story is such a powerful story. And I just said, Lord, whatever, whoever it is, we prayed for eight stories. I talked to my, my uh, editor in Guelph, Sarah Davison, and I said, Sarah, this is what's on my heart. I think there should be a book, and I, I don't know why, but it seems like it should be out the year of elections. And she said, count me in. I want to volunteer my hours, and, and she has done an amazing job of helping put this book together. And then I said, well, I don't have enough stories. Let's pray for eight stories. We got 20 stories. And that's another whole story of how we got all the stories. But there's also a story of how God has put this book together. He's an amazing God. And he can restore. He can redeem. And if through Unborn Untold, true stories of abortion and God's healing grace, lives can be changed, healed because of the grace of our wonderful Lord and Savior. May his name be exalted. And thank you for allowing the conversation to be open within these church walls. It wasn't too long ago that one woman shared her story with me. Went to a church, wanted to feel safe, but was scared. She was given to a certain counselor. She'd shared that she had two abortions. And I know this would never happen in these walls, but this is what some people face. She said she was told that God would forgive the first one. My God is a God of first chances, second chances, third chances, and beyond. He is an amazing God. You've got a story. I've got a story. And his story goes over all of our stories. And when the book, we started going through the stories, and we chose 16 of the 20 that came but we can share the stories. And today, Sharon uh, has come along with me and is going to read her story from the book. It's life-changing. It's powerful. Would you warmly welcome Sharon? My chapter is called No Spirit of Fear. 
The year was 1997. I was 17. My period was late. And I was scared to death. I had been dating my boyfriend for two years. We decided to have sex, and there I was. I made an appointment with the doctor, and he confirmed my fear. I was pregnant. When I told my boyfriend, we decided to tell our parents. Somehow, I ended up telling both sets of parents myself. My dad told me I wasn't keeping it, and my mom simply cried and didn't say anything. My boyfriend's dad beat him and yelled, and my mom, his, his mother accused me of trapping him. That launched a very difficult time in my life. The doctor told me I could have abortion, that what was in my womb was just a bunch of cells right now, and that he would refer me. The referral had to go before a board and be voted on. It took weeks, and meanwhile, my baby was growing. My parents didn't want me going out much because I was showing. No one would speak to me at home because I didn't know what to say. It was very uncomfortable. My feelings for my boyfriend had totally turned off. We broke up before the abortion, so we had no say in what happened to our child. I was almost eight weeks along before the board decided I could have the procedure done. Things moved quickly after that. I was forbidden to see anybody, and I was in the house. I had no one to talk to because this had to stay quiet. I was so scared and alone. The night before the abortion, I was lying on my room, wishing this had never happened. My mom came in and paced the floor. Clearly, she had no idea what to say. She finally managed to tell me that she didn't condone what I did, but she still loved me. And then she left. No hugs, no tears. I was terrified and alone. The morning of the abortion, nobody would talk to me or look at me. We were all in the dining room. Mom and Dad were talking too softly for me to hear. I was deeply ashamed. And I felt terrible for causing all this trouble. I was still very alone. Someone dropped me off at the hospital. I don't remember who. The whole experience was like a bad dream. I was wheeled to the operating room and left in the hallway for what seemed like forever. No one told me that there was another way or that Jesus loved me or that I could be forgiven for what I had done or what I was about to do. No one hugged me, reassured me, or told me what I was, that I was going to be okay. The nurses shot hard looks at me. I wanted to apologize for being so disgusting. They wheeled me in and stuck a needle in my hand. When I woke up in the recovery, I was crying for my baby. The nurse told me to be quiet and lie back down. Still groggy from the anesthetic, I got dressed and went out and waited for my ride. I wanted to die. It was like my body went into mourning for my baby. I was very sore and scared, and I felt so violated. When I got home, I went straight to bed because I felt awful. My dad made me get up and vacuum the house, even though they told me to the hospital not to exert myself, and the bleeding was really heavy. He looked at me with such disgust. All I wanted to do was make him love me and forgive me. But as the days passed, things got worse. The only time I was permitted to leave the house was to go to school. The whole year was felt with self-loathing. I hated myself, and I felt as though everyone around me hated me too. A thought began to grow that if my dad and others thought I was a tramp, I might as well be one. One night when dad was working the afternoon shift, I pulled on my tightest jeans, applied heavily makeup, and headed uptown. Two men in a car pulled over and asked me if I needed a ride. I said yes. 
The desire to punish myself was so overwhelming that I was willing to sink deeper into the abyss. I climbed into their car. The men asked me if I wanted to have a good time. I said yes, and they drove to a back road. I don't know why, but before anything could happen, the driver turned the car around and drove me back to the spot where he picked me up. I was deeply hurt and rejected, but I shrugged it off and got out of the car. Every attempt I made to degrade myself ended the same way. It would go so far that it stopped. I didn't know it then, but that was God saving me from myself. I still wanted to hurt myself really badly. Before the abortion, I was on the honor roll at school. I was obedient and respectful. I was a virgin. Look where that got me. I might as well be who they thought I was. However, gradually feelings for my boyfriend came back. He had been my best friend, and we had done everything together. I loved him very much. I snuck around and called him all the time, and when I turned 18, he bought me an engagement ring. I showed my dad, thinking he'd be happy for me, but instead he asked me to leave the house. As soon as I graduated, I moved in with my boyfriend. We were married 10 months later in front of the Justice of the Peace in the courthouse. We have two lovely children whom we adore and two wonderful grandchildren, but the abortion continued to be a constant source of pain and shame and hurt throughout our marriage. For years, I was on antidepressants. My husband promised me we could renew our wedding vows in the church at our 10-year anniversary. He was saved, and the, he and the kids attended a Pentecostal church. I didn't go with my family because I thought God would get me if I stepped foot in the church. My husband asked his pastor if we could renew our vows, and he said no because I wasn't a Christian. I was angry and decided to go to church the following Sunday to speak with his pastor. I sat in the pew with my son and listened to the message. For the first time, I heard that Jesus loved me and I could be forgiven for my sins. Tears streamed down my face, and I didn't know why. The pastor asked if I wanted to come to the front and pray the sinner's prayer, and that me and my son went up and gave our hearts to the Lord together. I'd never experienced anything like it. Instantly, the love of God washed over me like a huge wave, and I knew without a doubt that I had been washed clean, and I'd been forgiven and set free of all the shame and the anxiety and depression and fear. I cried for three days. I told anyone who would listen about Jesus and his forgiveness and love. Everyone at work saw a difference in me. I read the Bible, attended every church service, and prayed every moment of the day. Soon I was off all medication and wrote a thank you card to my psychiatrist telling him about my salvation and let him know that I wouldn't need his services anymore. When I gave my heart to Jesus, I started to read the Bible, and the first thing God showed me was what he thought of me and who I was in him. He revealed to me that he had redeemed me and set me apart for his will, that I was chosen by him, and that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am loved, set free, and washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. The joy of the Lord filled me. It took time, but I slowly started to see myself as God sees me. One day, someone from the pregnancy center spoke at our church. Afterwards, she left brochures. I picked one up on post-abortion trauma counseling. I prayed about it, and I said, God, who can I give this to? And his answer was me. He wanted to take me through the healing of my abortion. I thought he'd already done that. I was so scared because I never told anybody but my boyfriend and our parents. 
about the abortion. I took a while to work up the nerve, but I finally made the appointment and prayed that whoever the counselor was, she would be a strong, godly woman. God's presence could be felt so strongly through the whole session. Lisa was my counselor. She was an RN, and God worked powerfully through her. She gave me scripture verses on fear. When I asked her why, she told me that I have an enemy, and he wants me to remain a captive of fear, but God desires to set me free. To truly understand what that means, I needed to be able to speak the word and get it into my spirit. Lisa assured me that memorizing scripture on fear was very important, so I memorized John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And 1 John 4.18 told me that there is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear. And 2 Timothy 1.7 revealed to me that the spirit of God, that spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but he gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Those were three verses that I never forgot. During counselor, Lisa instructed me to man imagine that everyone who was involved in the abortion sat in a chair in front of me and one at a time. As I did, I was able to tell them how they had hurt me. Later, imagining them in the same chair, I had to forgive each of them. I even got to ask Ruth Ann, the name that I had given my unborn baby, to forgive me too. Lisa said she was with Jesus, so she would for sure forgive me, but it was so hard to ask her. Still, it was incredibly powerful. She gave me a ceramic baby to present to represent her, and I was able to write an obituary, bury her symbolically. After all those years, I was given the opportunity to grieve my child and go through all the stages. The anger I had was so big that I would shout and scream and cry. I spent so much time on my face before God, nothing was left out, and by the time the course was finished, the healing was complete. When I told someone about my abortion for the first time, I wailed like a wounded animal. My husband even came to counseling with me once, and Lisa was so surprised, she started towards us, and then she made a beeline for the office. A group of women were in there praying for our, our session, and she told them my husband was here. They were so happy he came to support me. When she told them he's the father, they stayed in there and prayed for us for 20 minutes. I'll never forget when Lisa wanted me to walk in the Right to Life march. I was apprehensive and nervous that someone there would know I had an abortion. I still went and brought the kids too. They didn't know about my past, but they came with me anyway. It was a powerful experience. God showed me I was not the same person I used to be. By his grace, it was as though the past had never happened. Sadly, some of the marchers looked down on the people who had abortions, but I walked in mercy and sadness for the women who are lost and dying and don't know there's another way, who have never been told that there's a father who doesn't think they're dirty and disgusting an all-loving, all-caring father who longs to show them real love, a love to show you that he showed me. God called me to go back to school for medical secretary, and I was able to attend my graduation this time with both my husband and a friend to celebrate with me. After I graduated, I got into a GP's office. It was a wonderful until the day came, the girl came for a referral for an abortion. I hung my head and cried and told the doctor that I couldn't be part of the chain that ended this pregnancy. I started to gather my things because I was sure I'd be fired. He was angry and he said it was part of my job, but his wife didn't want to lose me. She spoke with him and it was okay. He was okay. I asked him if I could tell her that there were other options and help out there for her. 
He agreed. So I told her that Jesus loved her and that if she went through with it, she would regret it. And, and she understood that I knew what I was talking about. I gave her the phone number for the pregnancy center and she ended up keeping her baby. When she brought her baby to the office to show me, thank you, Jesus. She brought her baby to the office to show me. I cried partly because no one had told me what I told her, but mostly because I was so happy for her and her baby. I've gone on to work in an OBGYN office and have been able to speak to many women. A friend of mine who also works for OBGYN and I, we prayed constantly abortions would stop. There are now no abortions done in the hospital that I work at. Praise God. I led my mom to the Lord when I asked her to forgive me for the abortion. She saw how forgiven and loved I was because of the salvation I received through Christ Jesus. The guilt and shame she had felt since I'd ended my pregnancy was enormous. Now our relationship had been healed and was better than ever. My dad and I also reconciled. He went for an operation. He had a reaction to the anesthetic. His brain swelled and he presented as though he had dementia. The medical staff talked about putting him in a nursing home, and he was only 59 years old. I took a week off of work to be with him and spent the time praying for his healing around the clock. I wrote scripture verses on slips of paper and left them everywhere in his hospital room. One day he got up to go to the washroom, and when he came back, I noticed that his feet were dirty, and I filled the basin with water, and I washed his feet. He hesitated for a moment, and then he let me wash his feet. His healing was immediate. We were in awe of the power of God. Dad and I talked when we got home, and he told me he had given his heart to the Lord years ago when he was just a young boy. But after what happened in the hospital, he rededicated his life to God. My mom and dad have since gone on to glory, and I know Ruthie is sitting on their laps loving them, and they are loving her. My husband and I have been married 39 years and together for 44 years, which is a miracle because statistically it never should have worked. But God, we hardly ever really talk about the abortion, mainly because of the feelings that come back when we do. We have not told our children as of writing this story, but there will be another chapter in which God has healed our relationship completely and my children will know that they have a little brother and sister in heaven that they will meet one day. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. And notice the care that she got from a pregnancy crisis center. And I'd like to give a shout out to those that are already walking alongside and helping women to have know they have choices. And another one that is doing such a wonderful job in the healing process is Dr. Libby Skidmore. She has a few words for us. Thank you so much for having us. I knew we needed to have in that, this book a chapter by someone who is in the profession because I can bring the spiritual implications but not the mental implications of abortion. But my good friend, Dr. Libby Skidmore, lives in Ruscombe and has a, a practice in Leamington. And she, um, well, perhaps a little reluctantly, come on up here, Dr. Libby. A little reluctantly at first, but she's added a chapter for, of emotional healing after abortion. And so thank you, 
Dr. Libby, my friend Libby, for participating in Unborn. You've made a wonderful contribution to change lives. Well, thank you so much for having us here today. I wanted to start um, this second service by sharing a bit from a story. I'm going to just call him R. Uh, he uh, was with a woman that he loved very much and got pregnant. Uh, she got pregnant and they uh, were very, very surprised, didn't know what to do. It was quite a number of years ago where this kind of thing was uh, less common than it is now and more shameful, if I can use that term. And they didn't know what to do. So he stepped up immediately and said, you know, God will be with us. We'll, we'll have this child. We'll do what we need to do. And she was afraid. And uh, she went ahead and made a choice to end the pregnancy and then told him about it. So he was absolutely devastated. And Ruth asked me, uh, we did ask if he would share here today, and he is a lovely man that I was able to meet not long ago, uh, but he doesn't do well in front of crowds. So he didn't have a problem with us reading his story, but he didn't care to do that himself. So I'm just going to read uh, for him. So he starts out, uh, and I do want to say that there is no death in the kingdom of God, and that's what he has made so clear, that this child of his lives. So he starts out by saying there is no such thing as death in the kingdom of God. And after the abortion took place, he spoke with a wonderful Christian counselor regarding, among other things, the loss of his child. The counselor was wonderfully skilled, but upon seeing the rawness of the pain relating to my child, she referred me to someone she defined as having a gift. She told me she would not tell the new counselor anything about me other than that she was making the referral. I met with this new person. She did not ask why I was there, but she suggested that we start with prayer. When I closed my eyes, the only thing I could see in all different fonts in my mind's eye was a single name. As we prayed, she said to me, you have a child. He is not with you but you know his name. Incredulous, I responded, yes, his name is Daniel. After we prayed, I said, I always felt the baby was my son, but I thought that being a man, I would just lean that way. And she replied, I'm not a man, and I know it is your son. Shortly after that, another amazing encounter. I did a brief tour with an evangelist. One evening, I sang my song, which he had written about his unborn child. And after we were finished, a young woman came up to me and said, when you were singing your song, God told me that your son was listening. I said, isn't that interesting? Because I did not introduce the song as being for my son. I said, for my child. And she replied, God said your son was listening. As God often does, he confirmed the truth he had told me, I have a son, Daniel, and he is alive. I will see him again. And he heard the song I wrote about losing him. I can't wait to see him and spend eternity together in reality. I renamed the song Daniel's Song. Isn't that beautiful? 
So I just want to thank R for uh, sharing his story in the book. And we heard this morning from a woman named Sharon, whose story is in the book. Um, brave, courageous people who have been willing to share stories about which they've been silent for years and years. Well, uh, I am a registered psychologist, and uh, as Ruth said, I do have a practice in Leamington. So over the years, I have worked with people who have had uh, abortions, and people who have told me years and years later um, that they had never told anyone in their life about what had happened because they felt so much shame over the situation. I'm pleased that today we have a more open environment where we are able to talk and, and share about these things. The statistics about abortion are pretty amazing, and I can't quote them, but one in something or other, women will have had an abortion, and that tells me that there are women here with us today who have, and who likely have not told anyone or not shared that with anyone. And this is part of the reason why we want to share this wonderful book, because it is called True Stories of Abortion and God's Healing Grace. And that is the marvel of it, is God's healing grace. I do want to just share, uh, I had a very difficult time when Ruth approached me about doing this chapter in the book because I had my own story and I hadn't faced it. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I had two small children and I lived with, my, my husband had a mental illness. We didn't know at the time, but life was very, very difficult and I thought I was pregnant again. And I truly believed that I would go crazy if I had another child. So in a panic, I called my doctor and I told him I didn't know what to do. And he said, well, you know, just calm yourself and come in and see me tomorrow. And isn't God just full of mercy that very same night my period started? What a strange thing to be telling all these people. <laughs> But I was so relieved, so relieved. But it was years later when I was studying to be a psychologist and I needed a placement that I accepted a position at Planned Parenthood. It was the only position I would have in my location in my town in the States where I could do counseling. And I believed that I would have an opportunity to talk with women who are coming for an abortion and maybe offer them another opportunity. I was disappointed when I got there that all but maybe two had already made up their mind when they came, that an abortion was what they wanted. There was not much of a discussion that they were interested in having with me. They simply had to sign off that I had mentioned to them that they had an option to look at uh, adoption uh, or to look at resources for carrying that child to term. I was working at Planned Parenthood for a semester. It was a placement. I was required to keep a journal while I worked there. And I can remember in the middle of the semester writing a journal entry that I was sick. I was sickened at the end of the day thinking about what had taken place that day and thinking about the unborn children. And when I turned in my journal at the end of the week, my advisor said to me, don't 
say that to anyone. Make sure you don't say that at work. That wasn't the worst that had happened to me, though. I want to share. I didn't share this this morning, but I want to share now. It is part of my story. My chapter is on healing from abortion, and I do have in there wonderful suggestions for anyone who has had an abortion or whose loved one has had one, uh, opportunities that they might take for healing from abortion. But I'd have to say that the thing that was the most upsetting about writing this chapter for Ruth for Ruth was that I had a next door neighbor at the time. And she, uh, I remember our, we lived in these, uh, it was kind of government housing, I guess, because we were all so poor. And we were sitting out on the back step. I had been sitting out there and she came outside and she was weepy. And she uh, told me when I asked her that she was pregnant and she didn't know what she was gonna do. She already had three children and her youngest was quite young. And she was really beside herself. She was a beautiful Catholic woman and had very strong beliefs, right, about uh, birth control, which they didn't use, and uh, very strong opinions about abortion as well. I grappled with my truth I grappled and grappled with my truth in writing the story because in my mind's eye, I felt like I had offered her an abortion. I remember she told me about her dilemma and I remember that I was working at Planned Parenthood and I told her about the availability of safe and legal abortion. But I cannot recall if I made that suggestion to her or if I confirmed to her the availability. And I was devastated when I had to revisit that. Absolutely devastated. I didn't know what to do with that. And so I went back to try to recreate the conversation that I had had with her. Lord, I wanted to know where was the truth and what should I say in a book? What should I say? In the end, I couldn't recall having been the one that gave her the idea. So I felt like I couldn't write that in the chapter, but I felt like a condemned person. And I could honestly say, and you'll read that in my chapter, I felt like Saul standing at the stoning of Stephen, holding the coats of those who were casting stones as though I were in agreement. At the time, now this is reflective, this is 30 years later that I'm going through this now, writing this chapter. But at the time, I remember she decided to um, find out some information about abortion. She elected to have an abortion and it was over. Her pregnancy was solved. Her pregnancy problem was over. And life went on. And her husband graduated from their program and he, they moved away. I saw her a year later in their new home, and they had a brand new child. Well, he wasn't brand new by that time, so it wasn't a year later, it was maybe a couple of years later, and the child that they had was maybe about, uh, maybe two years old. So in between their children, they had aborted this one child. 
the new child was beautiful, beautiful blue eyes and curly hair, and he was just delightful. And he had a developmental disability. He was just a little bit slow. And as we sat over coffee, I remember my girlfriend saying to me that she wondered, would the child that she had aborted have had disabilities or might it have been perfect? And she wondered if she and her husband were being punished or if the punishment was coming upon the child for the act that they had taken. Now, these are inside stories, are they not? We don't talk about these things in our culture. And many women hold a truth like that private because they fear judgment. But as I did my research for the chapter, the saddest thing that I came upon was an article written by um, a minister of a large church in the United States who said that there are women in his congregation who sit in isolation who choose abortion because they believe that the person sitting next to them would judge them. And so I think it's very important. We're, we're talking about a book here that's about a topic that we are just beginning to talk about. And we're being able to talk about it now in healing ways, God's grace. There is no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus, none. And as I took my story before the Lord, just weeping, I remembered when I was a little girl, there was a thunderstorm coming and I wanted to go outside and play in the rain. And my mother saying, no, you can't do that, it's dangerous. But I just had, I wanted to be in the rain. I wanted to, and as I was praying before the Lord, suddenly I saw that little girl on the sidewalk. I don't know if my mother let me or I just imagined. But in this time of prayer, I saw myself as a little girl, curly hair, and the rain coming down on me, cleansing me from all unrighteousness. And the Lord showed me, you did not make a decision for that woman to have an abortion. And you are cleansed for your part, whatever part it was that you had. And I think the story is worth telling because I didn't abort a child. I might have. But I realize that there can be, when we meet with other people, there can be no condemnation because except for the grace of God, I was there myself. And I think we need to realize that. And I was telling Ruth as I was preparing for today that one of the things that I was concerned about was that there would be women here who'd never told their story. And I know there are. And there are some women here who will have a problem pregnancy sometime after today. And you'll have a choice. And like my voice of courage to us as believers is let us not judge one another. Let us come alongside to help. We have the pregnancy center out front and they have new resources now to help. There isn't a reason why 
A young woman cannot, even if she is alone, bring a child into this world and raise it. And as a community of believers, we can help those individuals do that. So I just wanted to share that today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to turn it back over, and God bless you all. Thank you for sharing your story. She quoted Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, so there is, now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. In Psalms 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Can you stand with me, please? Jesus came to take the judgment of the world upon himself. Jesus came to bear our sins, to bring freedom. I have one more verse I'd like to read. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, Then if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and forgive their sins, and restore their land. If you'd like to stand with us on that verse where we humble ourselves and pray for our nation, I'd like to invite you to come down to the front. Please move all the way up so that everyone can get down that would like to come. But if you'd like to stand with us and believe God that if we, the people of God, humble ourselves and pray, something's going to change in our land. And I'm convinced that morality is not something that's legislated. It's something that transforms in the hearts of each individual when they learn to surrender their lives to Christ. And person by person is how we win. Father, I thank you for the bread in our hands that represents your brokenness. Just like we're broken, God. And you took the shame and the pain and the hurt and the sickness and disease and the emotional woundedness on the cross and we can exchange right now at the table through the covenant for freedom, health, healing, and life. I ask you, Lord, to touch hearts all over the room right now in the name of Jesus. The cup which represents the blood of the new covenant Jesus died so that we could have life. He died so that we could have forgiveness. He died so that we can have freedom. We have hope for a better future. We don't have to stay in our brokenness, but God made a way for us to have wholeness and we can spend eternity with him. I know this as well as the next person. 
I came very close to not being born. For some reason, my mom didn't get on the plane and go to the appointment. I guess that's good for me. It's a very real issue in our world today. And we have to be careful as Christians because we want to do Satan's work and condemn people. <laughs> and Jesus came to love people. So Father, in our brokenness, help us to love others. Help us to demonstrate grace and mercy and love as you love people. You lay down your life and served humanity. Help us to lay down our lives to serve humanity. Father, we look to you, the one who forgives us, the one who restores us to wholeness, and the one who makes a way for us, even where there seems to be no way. Any individuals in isolation and loneliness, discouragement and depression, Lord, help them to feel safe enough to tell their story and find the healing that you have for them at the cross. This day in Jesus' name. God bless you all. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Amen.